All right, I think we are on part 46 of Law and Gospel. I think I got told somewhat, I think it was this week, that all of our numbers were all messed up. And so I had to go back and realize that I had like two 40, part 42s, two part 43s, um, had all the numbers messed up. I think they're all correct now. So I know I need someone to keep track of all of it. But it's numbers, so I'm not shocked that I got them wrong. But when you have that many parts and you have all the different apps that we're on and you got a, this one, then you have to load it to this one, um, that's poss- it's po- always possible that that could happen the longer the series goes. So hopefully it's all straight and hopefully this is correct that we are on part 46. And if not, I'll get it fixed later, all right? And that means we're on part 46. Anybody remember what thesis we're on? Eight. That one's easier to keep up with, right? Thesis number eight. All, all I have to do is remember the page number, okay? But it, once again, it's numbers, so I just got to remember where it's at in the book. Thesis number eight. And what is thesis number eight? Yes, the thesis number eight is the word of God is not rightly divided. And just remember in the book that it's going to, from this point forward, every thesis is basically going to be the word of God is not rightly divided. The word of God is not rightly divided. And just so that everyone knows, if um, I did a review of a podcast about law and gospel that's somewhat based off this book, and just so that everyone knows that what I have here is the like cliff notes of the book. Because the original book is like 450 pages long. Um, so this is like the cliff notes of the cliff notes of the cliff notes. So um, just so everyone understands that. What, because what we're basically doing is taking what they're saying about the thesis just as a starting point or as a launching point into our own perspective on law and gospel. And just kind of using it as a framework to, to, for us to build our own conversation on. But thesis number eight is that the word of God is not rightly divided. When the law is preached to those who are already in terror on account of their sins and the gospel to those who live securely in their sins. Meaning what? That whenever we offer the gospel or we preach the law, we have to do it in the right situation to the right people. So in other words, we've already talked about how we can get the order wrong. Yes? Now we've got to make sure we know, is is this situation... Does this person need law or does this person need gospel? I think we also have to realize, and I think this is important, not just because I think we can take this thesis and turn into to looking at, oh, that person needs law, that person needs gospel. I think sometimes we have to look to ourselves and determine when we need law or when we need gospel. Because sometimes we don't need a, the law, sometimes we need the gospel. Now, other people may disagree, But that's really not a, I mean, we have to just be honest with ourselves and what we need. Because sometimes I think, especially within the Christian church, I think sometimes they, we, uh, we think the solution to everything is law. Uh, I think the Christian church just thinks every, every, every situation, they need law, they need law, they need law. They need to be told what to do, and then they need to be told that they're possibly not saved because of what they've done. And I think we have to do a better job of, of knowing the, the correct way to approach 
this type of thing. But if you remember, uh, the, this, this entire thesis started with two passages of Scripture. Does anybody remember what those two passages of Scripture were? Yeah, let's definitely look at the Scriptures once again. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Because I know when, whenever there's a delay and we, we miss a service or something, I, I know it can easy to, everything can be forgotten. But remember I talked about how I, I thought 1 Timothy 1 was such an important verse here. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. The law is good when we use it lawfully. Uh, does the NIV use the word lawfully? Properly, all right? When it's used correctly. Now, the fact that it's talked about using it lawfully or properly clearly indicates what? That there's an unlawful way to use it. There's an improper way to use it. So we have to constantly ask ourselves, are we using the law in a correct way? And, 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 and remember, when, when, and I want you to think about this, because sometimes when, in our minds, if I say, use the law incorrectly, sometimes we think immediately that I'm using the law in the sense of, well, if you don't do this, you have to do this to be saved, but we can use the law in many different ways. So I want to make sure we understand this, all right? When we talk about use of the law, what are some ways in which we use law in either referencing ourselves or referencing other people? I want to make sure we really understand and see what it means to use law. What does it mean when we use law? Okay. Well, let's just make it simple. We use law anytime we tell someone, this is something you need to do, this is something you must do, this is something you have to do. Or we tell ourselves, this is something I must do, this is something I have to do. Whenever I give someone something to do, that is law. If a person comes to you, let me give you an example. A person comes to you, they're filled with worry, they're filled with anxiety, they are depressed, they are discouraged. Christians almost immediately go into what mode? Law, because what do we start giving them a list to do? A list to do, right? We give them a list, yes? You need to read your Bible more. You need to pray more. You need to go to church more. You need to do this more. You need to spend more time around Christians. You need to stop hanging out with it. You need to stop doing this. You need to, it's all, we always, it's like, it doesn't matter what the situation is, right? Christians, as soon as we hear of anything that's supposedly not right in someone's life, we immediately do what? Here's the list of things to do. Here's the list of things to do. Because we just operate in the realm of law. Well, guess what? Sometimes that is an unlawful use of the law. You're not helping anyone in any way, shape, or form. And according to this thesis, what is the primary way of knowing that that's not the correct use of the law? how the person is feeling in regards to their sin. In fact, the thesis specifically says if they feel what way? Yeah, if they're in terror, if they're broken over it, 
You don't, they don't need more law. Law is not going to help them. Because what is law designed to do? To convict, right? To condemn. But let's be honest. In your Christian life and in my Christian life, have we always viewed that that's what the law does? Because there's clearly in, in your life and in my life, we have viewed the law as something that supposedly will help someone, right? We think, oh, here's, here's what you need. You need to do this. And we think that somehow by doing that, it will fix it. But that's almost a misunderstanding of the law, right? Because the law is really not designed to help them other than to do what? Reveal to them their inability to drive them to the gospel. So I think we just have to really understand what it means to use the law. And that's whenever we give people things to do. And then look at this. But we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. Verse 9. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stillers, for liars, for perjured persons, and as if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Basically, it's for whom? Everyone just living in sin in a blatant way, and, and, that's, and then guess what you need? You need the law to show you your sin so that you'll come to Christ for the forgiveness and comfort found in it. Typically, people coming to you who are broken in their sin, they don't need to be given a list of 50 more things they need to do. So far, is that good? Does everybody understand that? All right, Isaiah 61. But you may want to, like, on 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, you may want to just write that down somewhere and just, like, I don't know, memorize it. Just do whatever you've got to do to, to remember it. All right, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint... Uh, unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil for joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that, that, that he might be glorified. Please note, all of this comfort is to what kind of people? Who are mourning, who are broken, who need that healing. And anyone who's been broken by sin, they need the healing of the gospel. They don't need to be told 50 other things they need to do and they need to do this and they need to do that and they need to try better and they need to stop doing this because that's what we always come in with. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Did I not give the reference? Isaiah 61, 1 through 3 if I, if I didn't give it. Do we need to read it one more time just in case? Okay, you sure? All right. Now, so we read those two scriptures and it was just, less, just, just as a reminder First uh, Timothy 1 and Isaiah 61 shows us that according to God's word, not a drop of evangelical consolation is to be brought to those who are still living securely in their sins. On the other hand, to the brokenhearted, not a syllable 
containing a threat or a rebuke is to be addressed, but only promises conveying consolation and grace for, and uh, forgiveness of sin and righteousness, life and salvation to those who are broken over their sin. Right? We got to know exactly when to give these things. And we have to make sure we're handling it in a correct way. They go on to say, that was the practice of our Lord. He was approached by a woman who was a sinner, in Luke 7, 37, who in the presence of self-righteous Pharisees knelt down, washed his feet with her hot tears, and dried them with her hair. She was crushed when she came to Jesus. There was no one to comfort her. But she turned to Jesus, for she had realized that there he was. There was the throne of grace. The Lord did not utter one word of reproof because of her sins, she had committed, committed. No, not a word. He simply said to her, your sins are forgiven. And another instance, uh, he dismissed the guilty woman with the assurance, neither do I condemn you. And with the brief admonition, go and do not sin again. But in those cases, what happened? Jesus didn't really deal with the sin, did he? But in other situations, how did he handle it? He only dealt with the sin. With the Pharisees and the Sadducees, does he offer comfort? It's condemnation, 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 condemnation. The rich young ruler. Any comfort? No, no comfort. And sometimes it's bizarre, right? Because sometimes you're just like, wait a minute. That's not the way. That's not the way. And and in fact, sometimes Jesus acts in a way that goes against everything you've ever been taught about evangelism, hasn't he? Like, sometimes he acts in a way that you're like, wait a minute, Jesus, that's not the way you're supposed to evangelize people. But Jesus is demonstrating sometimes what is necessary. Nothing but law. And sometimes what is necessary? Nothing but gospel. And what is the determining factor of which is offered? The condition of the person. That means when it comes to other people, what is our job? To truly listen and hear the person and understand the person we're talking to before we just want to preach a message to them. Once we understand them and truly hear them, then we can properly give them, whether it's law or gospel. And the same thing is true of ourselves. Look, other people don't know how we feel, so we can't worry about what other people think. But we know deep down what we need. And sometimes what do we need? Law. Sometimes what do we need? Gospel. And who cares what other people think because they don't get to make the determinant factor in those situations. All right? Now, let's move forward. Here we go. The Lord treated Zacchaeus in the same way. He had gained the conviction that he could not go on in his sinful ways, but he must amend his conduct. When the Lord was about to pass in the neighborhood, he mounted a sycamore tree because he wanted to see the holy man. The Lord, catching sight of him, called to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. 
for I must stay at your house today. Someone's going to sing this song, all right? Zacchaeus surely expected that the Lord would go over the record of his sins with him and hold to him all the evil he had done. But Jesus did nothing of the kind. On the contrary, in the house of Zacchaeus, he said, Today, does anybody remember? Salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. It is Zacchaeus who says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I will give to the poor, and if I defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. The Lord did not demand this of him, but his own conscience, first alarmed, but now quieted, demanded this joyful act of generosity to the poor from him. Please note, Jesus didn't say you have to do this or do this. He didn't do that. He just simply told him what? Salvation has come. He didn't, he didn't say, no, 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 no. Now that salvation has come, here's the 37 things you have to do, because if you don't, John MacArthur will call this house and tell you that you're not saved. He doesn't do that. Right? What motivated Zacchaeus? Salvation. Right? The goodness of the gospel. And so he does so. It's a willing thing. Now, what some people say, well, see, that proves if you don't do that, you're not saved. That's not the point of the story, right? The point of the story is that he was a recipient of God's grace and mercy. And then he was motivated based off that. Some people are motivated more. Some people are motivated less. That's because of our, our own sinful nature. They go on to offer this. The parable of the prodigal is another illustration. The Lord pictures him to us after he had wasted everything he had as returning to his father with what kind of a heart? I think a con- they, they say a contract heart, a broken heart. The father receives him without a word of censure and exclaims, let us eat and make merry, for this my son was dead, is alive again, he was lost and is found. Now, we know how most Christians would handle the returning prodigal, Right? We'd be like, well, okay, first of all, are you sure you really, really feel bad about it? And secondly, we need a five-step program to ensure that you're never a prodigal again, and we need an accountability partner, and we need to do this, and we need to do this, and we need to do this, and we need to make sure of 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 that. That's not the way it's done. His return demonstrated what? The mere fact that he was returning demonstrated he was broken, demonstrated that he was humbled, demonstrated that he was ashamed. I mean, he was repentant, exactly. And once someone is broken and repentant, they don't need to be told 50,000 things that they've done wrong again. In fact, they already know what they've done wrong. And what we want to do is, in our minds, what we, 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 like, we better make sure they feel really bad, and we better make sure they know that there's going to be 700 consequences. And we, we want to immediately heap more law upon them. They don't need any more law. The other brother, exactly. Yeah, look, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about me? What about me? What about me? What about me? Meaning, hey, he may be able to come back. But he shouldn't be getting what? He shouldn't be getting the fatted calf. He shouldn't be getting all of this. He should be like, there should be some consequence. Well, you can come back, but you've got to stay in the back of the house. Or you can, you can stay in the shed out back. 
and you're going to be given these extra duties to pay back for what you've done. But that's not the way it works. Well, that's the way we want it to work. Right? We want a probation period, right? All right, he says, let us eat and, and make merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. A joyous banquet is prepared, but not a word of reproof is spoken. This attitude the Lord maintains even on the cross. Next to him hangs one who has led an infamous life. The patient suffering of uh, this patient suffering of Christ has given him a new understanding, which he voices in these words: "We indeed are justly in this condemnation, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong." Turning finally to the Lord, he says, "Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingly power." He recognizes Jesus the Messiah, and now observe what the what the Lord does not apply. Does he say, what? You, I am, uh, I am to remember? You who have done so many wicked things? No. He does not cast upon, uh, up his sins to him at all, but simply says, today you will be with me in paradise. Does Jesus offer any law to the man hanging on the, on, on the other cross? No. None. None at all. There's a time where law is needed and there's a time we've got to be quiet and just offer the gospel. But we feel, what do we, there's something inside of us that makes us feel like we can't do that, right? Well, what is it? What what are we afraid of? Well, for, well, if I don't make, you know, I'm afraid that they're just going to say they believe and then they think that everything is good. I've got to make sure that they understand they have to do this and they got to do this and they got to do this and they can't do that again. And if they do that again, they prove they're not safe. We, we feel like we have to somehow, we're the guardian of, and we've got to ensure that people feel bad and know that they're on a probation period basis. I mean, if you think about lordship salvation, that's really the way it handles it. Hey, are, do you want to be saved? Are you sure? Now, if you truly are saved, you're going to do this, 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 and this, and this. So meaning, my initial salvation is really just a probation because I don't know if I've gotten my salvation until I've done what? Until I've passed this test. So even with the gospel, what is handed down? Law. And that's, that's a destruction of the entire... Go- See, here's the thing. If you don't, this is, the, this is how some Christians think. If I don't bring in all of these other things that they have to do, and, 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 and the only reason Christians even use this word is because they, they learn, it's like they learn a 10, second, a 10 cent theological word and then they want to use it all the time. The second you say, well, I'm not going to give them all of these rules, immediately they'll throw out the word antinomian. They've never read a book written by an antinomian, never read a systematic theology written by an antinomian, probably have never even heard an antinomian sermon, and probably could not name you three theologians or antinomians, yet they'll use the word. Using the word antinomian doesn't mean anything other than you learned a 10-cent theological term. The next time someone uses the word antinomian at me, I'm going to be like, okay, tell me about antinomianism. When did it begin? Who are the leaders of the antinomian movement? Come on, tell me something. They don't know anything. But no, 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 no. You didn't mention the law. 
Well, that, I guess Jesus was an antinomian. Because shouldn't he be telling these people, wait, 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 wait. Unless you do this or this and this, you may not actually be saved. No, he just says, you're forgiven. I mean, what, didn't, didn't, why didn't Jesus say, now listen, listen, listen. You have to make sure you accept me as Lord as well. You've got to make sure that you, because look, salvation doesn't really come unless you do these 13 things that are going to be written down in a test by someone in the future. Does he give them the test? And then when, and then when we do have a group of people who die and stand before the Lord, they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we? Do all of these things. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. So in that case, the doing didn't prove anything. So if the doing doesn't prove anything, then why do we offer the doing as proof of it? See, the whole thing is just so convoluted. But we feel like we, we, feel like we can't do this. It, it, it really becomes maddening the way it all works out. All right, now, they continue. By these incidents, the Lord shows us that, we are to, that what we are to do for a poor sinner who may have led a shameful life, but has been crushed and contracted, full of terror because of his sins. In such cases, we should not lose any time censoring and reproving him, but absolve and comfort him. That is the way to divide the gospel from the law. That's the proper division. There is a time comfort is all that is needed. Absolve them of their sins. When we say absolve them of our sins, we are not absolving them because we have the power. When we absolve someone of their sins, we are announcing what? The forgiveness that is found in Christ. If I absolve someone of their sins, I'm not saying I'm the one who has the power to forgive you, but I'm reminding you that you're forgiven in whom? In Christ. And I don't think we do a very good job of absolving people of their sins. What do we have a good job? Uh, what do we tend to do good with people's sins? Reminding them of their sins. Right? We want everyone to remember their sins. Right? We would have been the people who walked around with David and every couple of weeks we'd have been like, Hey, David, remember that time you committed adultery and murder? You piece of garbage. Okay. Hey, but, but, but God forgives you, David. Hey, David, remember that time when you, you numbered the people? Hey, David, remember that time when you, you acted like you were crazy and tried to, to, to see? Remember that time you lied and got a bunch of people killed? Hey, David, how many wives do you have? Right? Well, that's, that would be us, yes? Hey, David, I don't know if you've really submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you really have, you wouldn't, get, you wouldn't have all of these wives, right? Hey, I don't even know how we would have handled Solomon. <laughs> okay, I don't even know what we would have done there, right? We would be the one always reminding. Now, either there's forgiveness or there's not forgiveness. And it's not even about reminding of someone past sins. If we're going to deal with their sins, what sins do we deal with? The current sin. And then the current sin needs to be given what? Law, unless they're broken and contract over it. And then what do they need? Gospel. 
That, that's just, I, 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 we, that's, if we're going to do a proper distinction, we have to have this down. The practice of the apostles was identical with that of the Lord. Recall the incident of the jailer at Philippi? He was on the point of committing suicide. When Paul called to him, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. All through the night, we had heard Paul and Silas singing praise to God. No doubt, a new knowledge had begun to dawn on him. When he heard Paul's warning, Paul's warning cry, he came trembling and falling down before Pilate and Silas and said, Men, what must I do to be saved? They did not tell him a number of things that he will have to do first, for an instance, to feel contrite. They simply say to him, remember what they tell him? Okay, nobody remembers this story. Everybody look for the story in the book of Acts. Everybody look for the story in the book of Acts of the, of the Philippian jailer. Let's see if we can find it. See if you can find it. Who can find it first? Book of Acts. Okay, did you find it? What chapter? Chapter 16, and what verse? Verse 28. What does he say? What do they tell him? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. What did you say? I thought you said something. Oh, no, you're saying, okay. All right, and that was Acts what? Acts 16, 28. Acts 16, 28 to 31, all right? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. They simply invite him to accept the mercy of God, for that is what faith is, accepting the divine mercy or grace. And remember, we believe this, just make sure we, we have to, because the Lutherans always take this kind of middle road. They don't want to be fully reformed, but they don't want to be truly Pelagian. It's really kind of a, a weird stance. But let's make sure we remember the faith that accepts God's mercy is not a faith of our own doing. It's a faith given to us by, by God. Okay, so let's just make sure we remember that. All right. The second part of the thesis tells us that the word of God is not rightly divided if the gospel is preached to such as live securely in their sins. The latter error is dangerous as the former. Incalculable damage is done if the consolation of the gospel are offered to secure sinners or if one preaches to a multitude in such a manner that secure sinners, that secure sinners imagine that the comfort of the gospel is meant for them. The gospel is not intended for secure sinners. We cannot, of course, prevent secure sinners from coming into our churches and hearing the gospel, and it devolves upon the preacher to offer the entire comfort of the gospel and all its sweetness. However, in such a manner, the secure sinners realize that the comfort is not intended for them. The whole manner of the preacher's presentation must make them realize that fact. Now, I'm gonna, this is very important here. All right. Because we have to consider something. This is very important. So, they want to make sure they understand that both errors are the same and they do incalculable damage, right? If I, if I am withholding the gospel, 
to someone who's broken over their sin and I just give them all, that's messed up. But if someone is secure in their sins and I, they, and I just give them the comfort of the gospel, that does incalculable damage. But this is important, all right? Whenever there are possible theological dangers or we see a possible problem, sometimes our solutions lead us to extreme ideas that in many cases does incalculable damage. Sometimes our solutions are worse than the possible problem. So throughout church history, there's always been these situations where we look and we're like, look at these people. They are secure sinners who think that they're okay and they think that they are right and they think that they're fine and we've got to fix it. Because there's too many people claiming that they're Christian, thinking that they're going to heaven, when clearly something is wrong. Do we agree that that has happened at different times in church history where people have become very bothered by that possible reality? I mean, I hopefully, ever, I mean, the whole book, The Gospel According to Jesus, is because MacArthur was greatly bothered by it, yes? Felt like there was too many people secure in their sins. Now, what was MacArthur's solution? MacArthur's solution was to make everyone what? Question or doubt their salvation. And how did he make everyone question and doubt their salvation? Because he came along, and what he decided to do is basically add kind of, like, here's law, here's gospel, and what I'm going to do is anyone who believes the gospel... I'm going to give them what? I'm going to make them judge the gospel on the basis of law keeping. So your salvation is determined by your law keeping, not because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, I understand the motivation, yes? Because if you, it's so weird. If you have the conversation with anybody, you're like, no, you can't tell me that a person can just believe and be saved. They have to do this. And it's like, whoa, why are you so driven by law? Because if you truly apply the law that way, what is the end result? If you're honest and faithful with the idea that law keeping proves salvation, you would come to the conclusion of what? that nobody is saved because law-keeping demands what kind of behavior? Okay, remember, personal, perfect, exact, entire, and perpetual. So we would be condemned. But you can understand the motivation, right? Look, I understand the motivation. This is what sometimes drives me crazy about this series is, is being so misunderstood when you try to explain. I understand that you can, like, we'll just use Robert. There's Robert sitting over there and you're like, well, there's no way he can be saved. I mean, we, we're bothered because Robert's just living in blatant, unrepentant sin and I'm bothered by it. But what's the solution? Some people think the solution is to go convince Robert that he was never saved because he's not doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G. That sounds so good. The only problem is the minute I establish that principle, then I have to apply that principle to everyone, right? And guess what? For every person, I can clearly find that we all fail the test if we're even halfway honest with the test. I can give you, this, I can give you a three-question test, right? And everybody knows what I'm going to say. What am I going to say? Do you love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul? 
No. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Are you holy as God is holy? Well, then you all fail the test. Guess what? None of you are saved. So then what do I have to do? Well, I mean, but, 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 you're not going to do this perfectly. So it's just like, are you kind of moving in the direction of loving God? With Well, then that, that what immediately I do that, what have I done to the test? I've so watered it down and made it so subjective that I can then, basically you haven't, what you set out to fix, you didn't really fix, right? You just create another category where people can say, well, I mean, I'm trying. I mean, I'm moving kind of in the right direction. Well, no, no, it's either you are or you aren't that. I can't have a test where, I mean, you don't grade a math test that way, right? Well, I mean, you're kind of moving in the right direction. I mean, you got the first part of the formula wrong, but the second and third part, you messed up completely. Well, hey, do I get credit? No, it's either pass or fail, right? But, but the people who want to give the test then want to so water down the test, and guess who gets to determine who passes the test? The person who gives the test. They're the ones who get to ter- determine who's saved, which just destroys the whole thing. So what is the book is offering kind of a different solution. The book solution is if I see Robert over there and he's living securely in his sin, then what am I to give him? Just the law. Saying, this is what God demands. This is what God demands. I'm not making a determination whether he's saved or not saved, right? And then what should the law hopefully, what we would hope it would do, do what in Robert? convict him, and break him, and either make him flee to the... But for many Christians, they don't want him to come to... This is the bizarre thing about many people who hold to the lordship position. They don't really want Robert to run to the gospel. What do they want Robert to do? Start acting right. I want everyone to understand how utterly blasphemous that is. They look at Robert like, I don't know if Robert's saved. So what am I going to give Robert? Law. But what do they want from Robert? Behavioral change. What should we want for Robert? To run to the gospel. Do I want Robert to change his behavior, or do I want Robert to find comfort in the gospel? Does it... I mean, I don't know. Some of you, I mean, I, I mean I've, I've, I've tried to say my whole life, everyone has to read the gospel according to Jesus because I've tried to make this point. If Whenever I read the gospel according to Jesus and MacArthur study guide on 1 John, my first thought was that I need the gospel. My first thought was I need to do better. That is evil. That is satanic. The law is not to drive me to I must do better. I'm going to love God more. I'm going to love my I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to tithe more. I'm going to do better. No, it must be that I am a sinner and I need the gospel even more than I ever imagined. If it just leads to behavioral modification, then it's not, it is antithesis to the gospel. Right? You're still going to be the same person, even if you tried to change, right? I mean, no, we, we've, we've gone through this a million times. So what the person needs is to be driven to the gospel and find comfort in that. 
So their solution is actually a solution that keeps people from what? Their solution is not a solution that drives you to the gospel. It's a solution that leads you to a never-ending series of behavioral modification where you convince yourself that you're better than you are, which creates nothing more than what? Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, I'm not saying that that's the goal of it. I'm saying that's the unintended consequences that flow from it. The motivation for it, I understand. Right? Because we've all met people say, well, I'm saved. And, and, and you're like, what do I, what's wrong with them? Right? Well, I, I, my job is not to detect what's wrong with them. My job is to go, I know what they need. They need law. And what do I want the law to do? I want everyone to say it. Drive them to the gospel. I want to make sure everyone gets that right. When we give the law to someone who's living secure in their sin, what do we want it to do? Drive them to the gospel, not just to change their behavior. If all of it does is try to make them live better, that's not the solution. They drive to the gospel, find comfort in the gospel because they're now broken over their sin. And once they find that comfort in the gospel, what do we then hope will emerge? Gratitude and love for God that then leads to some change. But we know that no no matter what change occurs, they are still going to be what? Robert said it, a sinner. That's why they need the gospel. I think, well, are you referring to how the MacArthur handles it or how the law and gospel book is handling it? Okay, the law and gospel, what they're trying to say is if you're living in blatant sin, if you're just living in blatant sin. Okay, yeah, but what I'm saying, but when I say blatant sin, it's like I'm living in this sin and I don't care. I'm not, I don't feel bad about it. I don't feel guilty. You may not even acknowledge that it's a sin. That's the person who needs law. And they need law for what purpose? I want to make sure we understand. Why do they need law? So they will, well, one will, so they'll see their sin, feel bad about their sin, and then it will drive them to the gospel. I got to make sure we get this right. It's got to drive them to the gospel. And, we, and look, you know why this is so difficult for us to grasp, right? Why is this so difficult for us to grasp? We're law-based, but if you've, if you've ever had a kid... When you give your kids law, what do you want? Behavioral modification. Oh, come on. Let's be honest, right? Okay? Sarah doesn't walk around the house and like, listen up, kids! And she hands out her law. She thunders law down from Mount Sarah, right? Okay? I mean, is that how it works, Emma? Okay, see, all right. See, all right. Okay, what, what is she wanting? Okay, perfection. Okay, right, okay, right. okay. Wow, Sarah, your Sarah's standards are pretty perfect. I guess that's the. Way. Okay, wow. She even demands the internal change. She wants the exterior and the internal. 
Oh, here, exactly. What? Right what? That's what she said, because I always said total obedience with a good attitude. <laughs> total Immediate total obedience with a good attitude. Wow. What is... So all the parents in here were just straight law-based, right? You will change and you'll be happy about it, okay? And it will make me happy, okay? Well, so there was very... But that's what we demand, right? And because that's what we demand, then how do we view a Christian... Christian the law? You, you need the law, so you'll change. And you'll do it with... A happy heart. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And a good attitude. However people word it. Okay? Because that's the way. And, the, and I understand. <laughs> Emma's loving this. She's like, I get to tell all the, oh, I get to tell the way it really is. Okay. okay. Did it ever work? Okay. Oh, it may have changed the, I'll be happy. But did you have a happy heart? Okay. You may have put a happy smile. Just so that the, the thunder of Mount Sarah would cease. Right? Okay. But you didn't have to have a happy heart. No. Do you know what another one of my favorite parts? Okay. Okay. Now, it's all, all the parents are going to confess now. Okay. Right. Partial obedience is still disobedience. Yeah. Partial obedience is still. I've said that a million times to my girls. Right. Partial obedience is still disobedience. And it, there's, from a theological perspective, that's true. I wish the Lordship people would understand that. Partial obedience is what? That meaning that what, what's our, cur- our current state before God 24 hours a day? Disobedient. Uh, if the Lordship people could understand that for five seconds, they would realize their tests are useless. Because no one passed the test completely. So then they say that you can pass the test even though you don't completely pass the test because impartial or partial obedience is sufficient, which then destroys the entire test, right? It it destroys everything. So I want to make sure we understand this. A sinner who is secure in their sin, they need the law. Yes, I want to make sure everybody understands. They need what? What do they not get? Gospel. But why are we giving the law? To the gospel, not to change their behavior. I know that goes against everything. It goes against things I have taught. It goes against things you have been taught. It goes against everything. And I understand why. In a parental situation, you don't really care if your kids get to the gospel. You just want them to behave, right? I understand that. But it can have profound impacts on a couple of things. One, sometimes it has, and this is the danger of being raised in a Christian home. They, they sometimes take that parental idea and it greatly influences their understanding of the gospel. And we don't intend that, do we? We don't. But it just, it's the, it's the, it just, unintended consequences. Because you wish that they would understand the gospel the correct way. But we all fall short here, yes? And this is the danger. If you're not raised in a Christian home, then you don't, you don't connect the parenting style with the gospel. If you're raised in a Christian home, sometimes your understanding of the gospel is derived from the parenting because sometimes we will tell the kids the reason we parent the way we are is because the Bible tells us so. So then it can, it can completely 
in their minds confuse them greatly. They, that, like, that's just the unintended consequences. Nobody sets out to do that. But you listen to some kids raised in a Christian home, and they start talking, and you're like, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Where did you come up with this idea? Sometimes they can't articulate where the idea came from. I can tell you where it came from. From our parenting. And it wasn't even our intention. Right? Yeah, because we, we give rules and we want results. We give rules and we want results. And guess what they think Christianity is? Rules that demand results. A set of rules that demonstrate our inability to keep said rules so that we will embrace the gospel that saves us irregardless of our ability to keep the rules. And the gospel does not save me so that I can keep the rules. The gospel saves me because I can't keep the rules. Did anybody else feel bad? Or am I the only one? Because we've all, we've, all we've all messed this up so bad, have we not? Look, if you would have asked me just years ago, I'd have been like, well, the reason Robert needs the law is so that Robert will change his behavior. Because if he doesn't change his behavior, he's probably not saved. That's exactly how I would have preached it. Because that's what I thought Christianity was. All right? Uh, Let me see, how much time do we have? This thesis is very long. All right. Oh, man, we've got two minutes. Okay, I'll just stop. (laughs) Okay. Well, all right. Well, the law demands that I stop, okay? Even though I'm not doing it with a happy heart, okay? All right? (laughs) Because I'm not happy about it in any way, shape, or form, okay? All right? But we have to. So So the most important thing that we've discovered this morning is that I want to make sure we understand this. Someone who's living securely in their sin. They don't get gospel. They get law. But the book doesn't address this, but I know exactly how we think. We think they need the law so that they will change the way they, the way they live or their behavior. And I, I am going to, th- I reject that. I don't, want God, I don't want Robert to change his behavior. What I would want Robert to do is to like, man, I am a sinner. God does condemn my behavior. I am wrong. Man, I've got, I feel bad. I feel bad. And then I say, well, okay, now, Robert, now that you're broken over it, here's the gospel. Jesus died for you. Jesus forgives you. Cling to that. They say, well, what about the behavior? Somewhere I believe the process will modify the behavior to some level. But I even know, that I don't even really worry about the behavior because I no matter how much Robert's behavior may change, what am I still going to know about Robert? Sinner who's still going to do what? He just may change. I, look, I guarantee you this, that no matter how much Sarah gave the law to you kids, and even though you kids may have acted way different than the kids who live somewhere else, maybe like an 1802 Moonlight Drive, right? 
Okay? They, may have, they may have acted way different. I guarantee you know that those kids were just as much a sinner as the kids who lived at 1802 Moonlight Drive. Just what changed? Just the type of sins maybe committed or how the sins were committed. Now, I understand that the parenting was never designed to fix the sin. It was just designed to fix the behavior. I understand that. I just know that law never ultimately does what? Changes the heart. Never has, never will. Israel had all the law you could imagine. How did that turn out? Did they, did they look different than the other nations? Sometimes. <laughs> A lot of times, and ultimately they didn't, right? But sometimes. In many cases they did, right? In many cases they did. Church of Corinth. Did it look much different than Corinth? Not really. In fact, they were doing things that wasn't even named within the Corinthians. Right? Like the city was like, wait, you're doing what inside that church? Okay, you guys are messed up, okay? Because no matter how many rules we get, we're still sinners. So the law always must drive us to the gospel, not to behavioral modification. Behavioral modification is the enemy of the gospel. Behavioral modification is the enemy to the gospel. That's one of those kind of quotes you may want to write down. Nobody else will agree with us, but I believe behavioral modification is the enemy to the gospel. I really do. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. These are some very important principles. I do not know if anyone here or anyone listening online understands the significance of what we've talked about this morning, but I hope we will meditate on it after this so that we can really begin to perceive just how critical this information is. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...